Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The horror franchise has been around practically since the horror film began. In 1931, Frankenstein became a huge international hit, which led to Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, Son of Frankenstein in 1939, and then The Ghost of Frankenstein in 1941. Then Frankenstein met the Wolfman, followed by House of Frankenstein, which was basically a sequel to Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, where Lawrence Talbot faces off once again with the monster. Ironically, the series came to a screeching halt when Abbott and Costello met Frankenstein in 1947. Although the film was a huge hit and even today packs revival screenings to the brim, once the characters took part in a comedy and with such great success, well, that was the end of that. The classic pre-Creature from the Black Lagoon Universal Monsters were done. They didn't call them franchises back then, but they were a staple of the horror genre then almost as much as now. Dracula had a daughter and a son. The creature got his revenge and walked among us. Even Norman Bates went psycho in four films over the course of 30 years. The horror franchise has never been in fuller bloom than it is today. If a horror film is a hit, even a modest hit, it is almost guaranteed to breed a sequel. Some are earned with storylines that welcome expansion and elaboration, while others are obvious commercial ventures designed by those who just want to turn you upside down and shake the money from your pockets. But it's easy to tell the difference. Adam Wingard's love for giant monsters is clearly on display in Godzilla versus Kong. And no one can doubt the passion for Halloween that David Gordon Green lends to the relaunch and wrapping up of the series. Most recently, we have Scream 2022 and its inevitable follow-up, Scream 6. Once again, there's no denying the love, not only for the genre, but a savvy understanding of horror movies and the Scream movies alike with their smart meta filmmaking. Scream 6 had the biggest opening weekend box office of all of them so far. Most notable about these two outings is that they were made by a filmmaking collective rather than in the traditional sense of demarcated director, writer, and producer. Radio Silence is a filmmaking team, Matt Bettinelli-Olpin, Tyler Gillette, and Chad Villela. It's definitely a different way to make movies, and they're going to give us some insight into how a three-headed team makes movies. One of my very favorite genre film festivals, the Overlook Film Festival, is a four-day celebration of all things horror held in America's most haunted city, New Orleans. From March 30th to April 2nd, genre fans and cinephiles from around the world will convene in the heart of the French Quarter, home to countless apparition sightings, voodoo legends, vampire curses, and even some lore related to our namesake, horror fiction's most frightening creation. Visit OverlookFilmFest.com for information on tickets and this year's program. It's a really great one, one of my very favorite, and I go to a lot of film festivals throughout the world.
So Matt, you come from California. You were a guitarist in a punk band, Wink 80. You went to UC Santa Cruz. Tyler, you're from Flagstaff, Arizona. And uh, and Chad. Not in a punk band, even remotely. <laughs> Not in a punk band. I was in a prog rock band. So that, that <laughs> the other end of the music spectrum. And, uh, and um, Chad, you're from Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania which is famous yep. Roundhogs, uh, but you're also a founding member of the Center for Information Research Analysis and Training. It seems like these three heads of the monster are quite diverse. How did it come together into a collective that I believe began as a comedy team? Yeah, it, it did. And it was, uh, it, you know, I think, I think we all moved out to LA wanting to make movies, wanting to get involved in movies, wanting to have something to do with movies. And as we started to kind of find the things that we loved and were passionate about more, we found that it's really hard to actually get into movies and actually do anything. So yeah, we basically, this is like early or mid, mid to late two thousands when the YouTube, YouTube is taking off and the internet is kind of becoming like a distribution platform and cameras are getting cheaper and you can just go do it in a way that I don't think had been fully accessible before that. And so, you know, the short version is Chad and I met in an acting class. Tyler and I worked at New Line. I was like the male guy and Tyler was an assistant. And we basically decided to join forces and go make stuff together as opposed to try to get our foot in the door and then climb up the ladder. It was like, let's just do our own version of essentially, we've also called it kind of our own version of film school because I don't think, I think, well, Tyler and I went to film school. I don't think it was the most beneficial use of our time yeah. necessarily. So it was more like, how can we just go make stuff and kind of learn by doing and and find our voice and kind of all through that process? Well, that's a good but thing I think about school is that you do have access to those tools and the technical aspects of it. So Ch Tyler, you were just going to jump in there. No, I was just going to say that, yeah, yes, you're right. I think that, you know, the things that Matt and I both learned from film school was that the sense of community is kind of the most important Thing that we yeah. that we took out of those experiences and that you know as often happens you leave a program you leave school and you know that group sort of disbands everyone kind of scatters to the wind and and goes their goes their separate ways and I think for us there was a real hunger a real desire to 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 recreate that sense of of community outside of outside of an academic institution and and I think uh, g given that we are from very sort of different backgrounds in different parts of the country, I think the other thing that we had in common outside of wanting to make movies was that we all were sort of raised on and influenced by the same things. I think that, you know, our love of our love of, of horror, of, of action adventure movies, like that was something that I think we all shared in common. So when we got together to to make our first short, it felt like for as much as it was the first time we were working together it weirdly felt like oh shit this is we're, we're all kindred spirits we're gonna do this we're gonna do this together for for a long time yeah i have i have uh taught classes or been a guest lecturer at film schools a few times and there's always like two or three you know are going to make a mark in the industry. And then about 50 of them who are just doing it because daddy's paying for it. And it's <laughs> like, it'd be a lot of fun to try. And they don't have any knowledge or love or passion for cinema. But Chad, did all of you share that passion together? Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. I think that 
that's a lot of it too. And even though my background wasn't in um, film school, I did, I, I, I came up through theater and I did a lot of theater in college and, and also in Pittsburgh. And um, while I was doing my, my the other work in my previous life, um, working for, you know, you know, for the intelligence work and also working for an Exxon Mobil. But it happened very quickly that I wanted to quit um, the corporate world and just really focus on, you know, what I love to do. And that was actually telling stories and and creating characters and and building worlds and and being able to do that um, uh, would be like just a dream come true. Um, So once we all got together in Los Angeles and started like talking about like the different things that we wanted to do and just getting out there and making our own things. I think, you know, we all shared a very similar work ethic uh, as well as a passion for film. Um, we, we shared a passion for the process as well. Um, and I think that's, that's very important. And like you were talking about, like a lot of film school people, they go in, they're, they're, they might be in it for the wrong reasons. Um, but there are the, those, those that really stand out that really understand what it is on a day-to-day basis and really in, embrace every single step of the process. It's not, it's not all red carpets. In fact, that's like the most, the the most unique experience that there possibly is in making movies. It's, it's the daily struggle to talk about story and to, to craft your, your characters and to build worlds and, and to be the outsider looking in on a lot of the things. And I think, you know, as young filmmakers, for lack of a better word right now, because just, just to get it out there, I think that that shared sensibility um, was something that really brought us together. And the fact that we weren't going to sit around and ask for permission and we were just going to go out there and, and make something for $50 and, and see what that would bring us. And, and, you know, and, and from that experience, you build, you make the next thing for $100 and you're like, okay, what did we learn from these past two steps that we can bring to the next step? while constantly being a student of everything, of story, of structure, of, of, of character, and, and just like really letting it grow that way organically um, was like our approach to it, to get into this. Well, Chad, you seem of the three of you, the most left brain, right brain. You, you have to possess both of those because you've got the creative side, and then you've got this corporate America side, these, so, I mean, they're Does always that, fighting. They always hate. They're always <laughs> battling. <laughs> Does that mean you run the checkbook and the and the practical end of things? <laughs> it actually does. <laughs> it does. It very much means that. I don't want to fuck with that. <laughs> <laughs> you at least your cortexes aren't battling one another. <laughs> yeah. So so Matt, yeah, that's true. What, what were those movies, Matt, that that really made you want to make movies? You know, it was, I think for me, it was the watching movies with my dad when I was a kid is when I really just fell in love with it. It's like now I have a kid, I'm kind of doing the same thing with him and I'm seeing that cycle take, you know, take the next step. And there was a theater up in Oakland where I'm from, the Paramount Theater, Paramount. I got to get it right, but we always called it Paramount. Uh, But and they would, they would have classic movies like the last Friday of every month. And so my dad would always take me. So I think that's, you know, where, I, and it, it would be like with the, you know, the piano and then there'd be an it's intermission so and you'd have a prize and they show serials before for like half an hour from wow. the you know forties and fifties. Yeah. So I really had that experience that my dad always told me about as being a kid going to the movies in little chunks when I was a kid. And it was just so special. And I, I think that's, you know, if I'm really examining it, I think that's when I really fell in love with like, 
the idea of movies beyond just something that I watch and enjoy. Right. Well, Tyler, what were the movies in particular or genre more generally and then more specifically the movies that that made you want to do that? I mean, I think for me, um, raised on genre movies that did it for me, the sort of holy trinity were Terminator, Predator and, and Alien. Those were like the three that were that were sort of on replay in my house and and similar to you know Matt's experience with his dad those my parents my dad was a huge fan of those movies and so you know it was a it was a means of connecting with him but I also knew that like they were dark and subversive because they scared my dad and so there was something kind of exciting about about that they had this uh they had this sense of power that um that nothing else really had. And, and so I was, I was just fascinated with that. And then the experience making memories, watching those movies, you know, with, with my dad was, um, was, was profound. And, and I, I think that that was, you know, those were the early genre movies, but back to the future, Jurassic park, like, you know, ET, like all the big kind of action adventure things that I think is, is really an ingredient that's in the DNA of what we love to do. You know, you, take, you were an ambling kid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Taking relatable characters, like really sort of suburban relatable stories and and adding having those those characters in their lives get hijacked by something big and crazy and extraordinary and supernatural. Like that was that was um it. Like that was the equation, storytelling equation for me growing up. And and I think that that's really similar for for all of us. And I, I think that there's definitely that's, that's in all of the things that we make to, to a certain extent that the DNA of that. So what was, what, what's your memory of the first time you saw the original scream, Chad, let's start with you. Um, well, I, I, I was a freshman in college, I believe. And I think we went to the theater um, and we're obviously just completely floored by the opening and what they did with, with the Drew Barrymore character. And I think, I think that's, that, that part really sticks with you, right? When you're that caught off guard going into a movie and you're like, wait, now everything I thought going into this movie is wrong. So now, now, now I have to like reapproach that and, and just be on the edge of my seat for the rest of the movie. I think we went maybe two or three more times that week and then immediately bought the VHS tape when it came out and it was just on constant loop. Um, playing in in our in our world, so um, you know, and and to the point where, you know, there are quotes from that movie that just kind of stick with you and become part of your daily life. Like, you know, I'm I'm feeling a little woozy here. Is something I think I've been saying for 26 years. <laughs> no, no, like at any given point. Um, but um, so I think that passion and that that ability to be able to comment on what we're watching but still have a good time like was something that was totally new in, ter- in terms of like mo- the movie going experience um watching scream for the very first time and and it's, th- it's those are the things that stick with you and just really just shift your perspective as a creative individual and i think you you go from like talking about story one way and like 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 tyler like growing up on the amblin fair and and being able to live in these other worlds but when when they start messing with you a little bit and you're like, now you're commenting on the world that you're trying to experience and like the way there are rules to horror movies and, and what's going on in the world. And you're, you're now intergate, you're engaged in a whole different level. 
Um, you know, and this is pre-internet, pre-anything else where people are, you had to talk about movies the old-fashioned way, like by getting together with a group of people and actually having a conversation. You're not <laughs> reading things about them. You're not reading it in snippets. Um, so those conversations that that movie sparked was just, and, that, and that's what movies can do. They can spark conversations. They can change ways of thought. And I think that's, that's basically what Scream did for, for me. Well, you guys started as performers, and Matt, you in particular, in addition to being comedic performers, you were a guitarist in a punk band. So tell me how that feeds the the other side of the creative mind in as a creator, in addition to being a performer who interprets someone's creation. It, you know, it's funny. I thought about it a lot because, um, well, because I have, but I, the thing that I think that... Uh, the thing that I think that I, I, I've landed on is, I mean, just first off, I never wanted to be a performer in terms of like an actor or anything. It was honestly my biggest fear. When I was in a band, I would often face the drummer because I was so uncomfortable on stage and I was so nervous. So I would, you know, I just put my back to the crowd and then I'd have a great time. Um, and the only reason I ever did any acting was because my girlfriend at the time, now wife, was like, hey, I know you want to be a writer and it's not really working out, maybe go learn some other parts of it and kind of that'll help you, you know? And so I signed up for an acting class. That's where I met Chad. And, but I, but I do think that the band stuff, you know, I started doing band stuff when I was like 15 and it really created in me in a very foundational way, this idea of collaboration and this idea of creating something with other people who are like-minded. And it's obviously something I take with me to this day. Uh, and I think so that really started there. And then the other kind of takeaway was just the do it yourself attitude and just the like, we're going to do this. We have no means to do it and no, no, you know, there's no promise of anything, but let's go do it and let's work together and see where we go. And, you know, honestly, I think, I think I really learned doing that with the band. And then it's been very true for us over the years is that you have to enjoy the thing you're doing. It can't be about something at the end, yeah, like some pot of gold, because yeah. that doesn't matter. And that's always gonna be out of reach. So you have to enjoy being on tour in a van with five guys and sleeping <laughs> on floors. And if you don't like that, then you shouldn't be doing it. And it's really no different now. It's like, we gotta enjoy what we're doing and make it fun and make it enjoyable for everybody else. And then everything gets better. The collaborations get better the work gets better and it just all, you know, rising tide. Well, the working together thing, um, the tools of filmmaking have become so democratized that anybody can make a movie. And we often joke here that the good thing about this is that anybody can make a movie. And the bad thing is that anybody can make a movie. But the fact is you started out in the YouTube era where that was new mm -hmm. and fresh and you had access to this. So you didn't have to rent expensive equipment, hire expensive crew and cast. You could make a movie for literally nothing digitally that looked like a real movie. So tell me how, Tyler, from your perspective, how did that kind of shape where you were going? Because you have, there were movies like VHS and, and South mm -hmm. and, and these things that gave you opportunities to do bite-sized horror stories. Yeah, I mean, I think that it was really... I think a lot of it is just sort of it, it, our approach was very much just kind of in the DNA of as as Matt had said that you know the idea of 
wanting to get involved in, in filmmaking and feeling like you had to ask for a ton of permission to do that. And I think that we came up in a time when we thankfully had the tools to not have to ask for permission because it was all, it was all there, you know, right, right next to us. And, and I think for me, one of the big things that the sort of turning point for me, and a lot of this was born of, of working in this, in this group was this demystification of what, of what being a filmmaker is and what making a movie is, right. You're sort of, you're sort of, raised on the idea of what a set looks like and you get to film school and everyone has to learn the different parts of making a film and and what sort of emerges is this feeling of well if I don't have a guy holding a boom and I don't have three people helping run that camera and a producer in this position and an AD in this position then it's like for some reason not a valid film it's like not if the process doesn't look really specific then the thing that you make certainly isn't isn't valid and I think for us we were like fuck that. It can be whatever we want it to be. The story can be designed however we want to design it. It is that sort of punk rock ethos. Like there was a naivete in, in our approach that I think was really valuable. We, we knew the rules, but we also knew that we were never going to have the resources to that, to that degree. So it really became about like, all right, we want to make this weird, strange found footage thing. We don't need an expensive camera. We've got this like old high eight, high eight camera. We've got five bucks to buy some tape stock. We've got this weird way to convert it into a digital file so that we can edit it. Let's go shoot. Let's go find a story that fits that aesthetic. Like let's, it doesn't have to look the way that we were sort of raised thinking it had to look. And I think that that was so freeing. It was so liberating because it really truly felt like we could call each other up on a, on a moment's notice and in a couple of hours be out shooting something. And, and, and I, I think that that was, it was such a like pivotal turning point for me creatively when I was like, I don't need anything. I don't need anything other than my, my brain and my buddies <laughs> to go, to go do the True. thing. And um, I think it was really, really a, a cool moment when it dawned on us that that could be the path. It could always be the path if we wanted it to be. Well, one of the great things about film school, and I never went to film school, amazing stories was my film school. But the, the great thing about it is that you do learn how to do all the different jobs. And I remember um, operating one class at LA Film School where they shoot an old Twilight Zone script, one of the original Twilight Zones. They have a standing set. And then every three days they change, the crew takes on different positions. And, you know, one guy, he was going to be boom operator that, that week or that day. And he said, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to learn anything by holding a boom. And it's like, how can you not embrace the opportunity yeah. to learn yeah. every single part of the job Absolutely. Of the movie? You need to. Absolutely. And then you also have the respect for all of those jobs as you move forward and you get lucky enough to have a larger crew and to work with more people. You know, we, because of doing the process when it was literally like us and maybe two friends helping out, we have like a deep respect for everybody on set because we know how hard those jobs are, even if it is just holding the boom, you know, it's not, that's not a small job. That's like a big thing. And it's incredibly important. And it's, it's, it's a community. It's not a single person doing it all. I also should say, just to go back to your earlier question about the love of things, I got to say it, amazing stories and Twilight Zone with my dad were two of my favorite things as yep. a kid. Every single, every week when it was on, it would be like, tune in. Here, I can still picture every moment of that opening and knowing like, oh, we're in for something good. I'm so excited. Oh, Such a big part of, of growing up. Yeah. 
Well, it certainly changed my life. You know, it was my first job as a screenwriter and first, second job as a director. And just the opportunity to have scripts directed that I wrote, directed by Robert Zemeckis and Joe Dante and Peter Hyams. Amazing. People. It was just such, that's my film school. And I could not have learned more anywhere else than there. And the opportunities that were given by people who were my gods, you know, it was right. just great. So Chad, let's walk through the trajectory of how you go from making these little homegrown shorts and being a part of anthologies where they're really unrelated because it's a bunch of people coming together, putting pieces to a puzzle that was never designed into a movie. And then you're getting into making a, a real movie like Ready or Not and, and then into Scream. So that trajectory had to feel amazing with every step through each of those doors that opened to you. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing better than being able to talk about other other stories and and building these other worlds with with like again with your friends. Um, I, I think what we were able to overcome, um, and now I think we're just starting to finally see, you know, the like this come to fruition a little bit more as actually just being called filmmakers now. Um, I think there was a lot, um, you know, now with Hollywood, it's it's or anybody, it, there's a lot of you know, you have to fit in this silo and that is all you can do. Like there was a long time where we were just the YouTube guys and then we were like just the digital guys. And then we were just the found footage horror guys. And then we were just like the horror guys and, and being able to tackle something like ready or not, where we're like able to play with tones and moods and, and actually, you know, make the movie a little bit more encompassing as to what we're doing with it. I think that was that opened up a lot, a lot more doors, and and those conversations were ones that we've always had them. We even had them when we were just the digital guys or or just the found footage guys. Like we were always talking about like you know proper structure and proper character development and proper arcs and everything like that too. But now we finally had the stage to be able to do it. Um, and th and then then you know we were we were just you know being able to like cast that to the nines. Um, with just incredible actors around it and ensembles around it and and being able to build out the team and see how that team grows organically just from the three of us to the producers like Trip Vincent and, you know, and, and writers Guy and Ryan who who wrote an incredible script and and we were able to like develop it a little bit with them just to make sure we got over that hurdle to get that green light at Searchlight. Um, but to build that team out and then cast it with Samara Weaving and the rest of the cast in Toronto was just was just truly fantastic to be able to like build that team and and still do kind of like what we were doing back in the day but to be able to like talk about it on a on a bigger scale on a scale the scale that you learned how to make films in film school <laughs> Where, right yeah with like <laughs> with actual like Honestly. department heads and, <laughs> yeah. and people doing things yeah well it must... without losing that sense of naivete i think that that was one of the right. things that we really tried to keep a part of the process is that it wasn't i, I remember there being a moment it was our first studio feature devils do that it felt like, I think it, it felt like, oh, we've arrived at this thing and now we have to be, we have to be different. We have to show up different. And I remember collectively sitting down and being like, we don't have to show up different. They hired us to do what we do. What if we just showed up and did the same thing with more? And there was something so comforting about being like, okay, yeah, we don't have to play some, we don't have to play to some idea of what this is. We can just show up and do what we do and just have more support. And, and I think that level of sort of humbleness is really, we, we try to maintain that 
<laughs> you know, across the board, regardless of the size of the project. Well, even in my gray years, every time I start a new project, I'm nervous and I have something yeah, to prove. Always. I want yeah. it to be better than before. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't think that ever goes away unless you become, you know, a hack. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. If you can't maintain the enthusiasm of getting the opportunity to doing what we mm -hmm. do and tell stories for a living, I mean, how can you cast aspersions on that? But it's got to be, we've had teams on before, like Beck and Woods and uh, the Daniels, but not a collective. So what's really unique about the collective experience, you're making union movies now. And mm -hmm. the unions, the guilds require certain titles for certain jobs. And how do you break up what the three of you do together into what the guild credits require? Yeah, the guild, the guild was the whole thing. I mean, we've, and we've actually been getting more involved with the guild now in part, in part, just because we believe really strongly in the idea of partnerships. And it, there's a small group of us that are partners in the guild that, and like, they have these dinners every few, every year. So, or, you know, I'm sure you've been to some of those or, you know, you sit around and kind of meet your peers and it's always just kind of starstruck and wow this is crazy we're in a room with these people but there's a small group of us that are like co-directors and i mean we get picked on often it's like <laughs> yes it is we sit at our like, own table <laughs> yes well you're not comical. allowed to have it's, more than two credited directors right so and they one, so we had to go sit in. So Tyler and I have co-directing credit. So we had to go sit in and do the, the song and dance to get that. And even that in and of itself was like a gigantic hurdle to get over. Um, and it's, it's, it's something that, that I think, it, you know, I think the Guild is opening up to changing a little bit more, hopefully, as things evolve. I mean, the Daniels just won an Oscar. Like, this can't be ignored, you know? Like, <laughs> it is a totally viable way of making movies. And I think that I love the idea of, you know, protecting the integrity of what it means to be a director. We th I think that, you know, I think we'd all agree that's very important, but yeah. also to like not, 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 not be too much of a gatekeeper to not allow different and new ways of directing to be a part of that. Because I mean, again, like if you couldn't have co-directors, we wouldn't have everything everywhere all at once. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's not, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an evolving conversation, but it's very, it's weird. And we've had to evolve the way we do things because of guilds and because of studio movies, you know, and it's, it's, you know, it's all part of the process. I think at the end of the day, it's just that kind of the growing pain, I don't know if pains is the right word, but like the, you know, the way we do things now, there's a lot in common with when we started. And then also hopefully we've all gotten better at what we do. So there's also been growth and change over the years, but it's, it's, it's been a journey. So, so Tyler, what are the lines of demarcation between the mm -hmm. three of you, this collective? Uh, how is one of you more involved with performances by the actors, one more with camera and, and tech and, and all of yeah. that? How, how does that break down in your team? Yeah, I think, that, I think for us, it's really like about three buckets, right? There's one bucket that is, yeah, cast, you know, performance. There's one that's like technical camera. And then there's one that's production. And 
you know, typically, and, 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 and these are all sort of interchangeable at times. Right. I think, I think. And overlapping. Surely. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like one of the things that's great about being a collective is that we, we all, our job is to get on the same page so that when, when all of these responsibilities land in our lap, we, we know how to handle them and still be making something that is really focused and really cohesive and really singularly our, our tone and our thing. So those lines, those lines, and it's funny, they've sort of emerged really naturally, I, I think, in a lot of respects because of our, our sort of maybe innate talents and, and kind of leanings like Matt is Matt deals with performance. I deal with the technical with the technical side of the directing, having come from a camera background and Chad handles all of the producing and logistics stuff. And I and it, it's really it's really emerged as this very cohesive thing. And I, I think that um, I think it's so natural. In fact, it just feels like we wouldn't know how to do it any other way. It's it, we feel we feel sorry for our friends who are like on, you know, directing solo and are just like, oh, my God, I'm getting the shit beaten out of me on this set. <laughs> and, you know, we look at each other. And one of the great things is about having having three people is you you get to really share in the success and, sh- and share in the failures and the stresses of what the process are. And I, I think you know, getting to spread that stuff out just feels good in every, regardless of the circumstances. Well, guiding a film from beginning to end is a very heavy load. And to be able to share that load three ways has to be, well, it's it's like being in a band together too, where you're all in it together and it's a team and you've written this song and performed it together for the first time. And it, yeah. it, it really has to, I mean, Matt, you must feel the same way as you felt when you were playing in a band. Oh, absolutely. And we talk about it like music a lot too, how it's like, you know, just like a band, you could have 10 groups of three people play the exact same song and it would sound different. All 10 would sound wildly different, you know, and that comes with like, what's your voice, what's your point of view. But it is that thing of like, we, we, we have to like write the song together for us in the movies. And it's, I think what Tyler's talking about with getting on the same page, it's the prep is such a giant part of it. The sitting around, uh, you know, logic proofing everything. And then when we decide that logic is the enemy of a good part of this movie, <laughs> unlogic proofing stuff, you know, but really being honest, honest with each other and having those just like, just like with music, you want to you want to be able to be with people you trust and can someone will call bullshit if something isn't working you know it's not like no one is just going to go along with it like so a lot of times something will be pretty good and you know one of us will go like it's good but like do we love it you know and then that's kind of the floodgates to like no because something's been bugging me too now let's talk about it and then we you know approach it from 50 different ways how to fix it but it is just that process of being like I think one of the things that we've said amongst the three of us a lot is like the thing that scares us more than anything as we you know are lucky enough to have a little more success is people saying yes like that is terrifying to us like we do not operate well in that like we like the friction of well let's talk about it and it's rattle tested and like don't just say yeah that's great yeah, don't let us don't get away with this because we're going to hang yes. on. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Like, totally. <laughs> yes. Well, one thing I learned on Amazing Stories in the very beginning of my career was you hmm. don't really learn much about directing by being on the set. You were talking about how so much of it happens in pre-production. And here I'm watching Steven Spielberg direct 
and you know everything is amazing and watching it go on but i don't know what's behind all of these steps he's taking so how much i mean what's your favorite part of the process matt is is it production is it pre-production is it casting is it post-production scoring what are the things that excite you the most i think I think for me, and I think I, I think we kind of all agree on this to some extent, but I oh, think I'm going to ask all of you. So <laughs> I, yeah, so I won't speak for you guys. But I, I, it's there's different things that I love about every part of the process, but there's something about the edit that I think is just the most exciting because it's like you know one of the things we've said is you know the production you're creating the pieces for the puzzle, but you don't really know what the puzzle is yet, no matter how much you think you know what it is. And then when you go to edit, it's it's that discovery, the process of discovery in the edit is always where it's it's not that moment to moment excitement of being on set where it almost feels like a sport, but it's it's so thrilling to like go home at the end of the day in the edit and just go, oh fuck yeah, that scene is finally working. And I know what what's working about it, and I'm so excited. And it's just so thrilling to actually see it come together. Oh, it's interesting. I don't think most audiences understand how much there is to the editorial process and how oh you can find oh. and reshape. <laughs> and every director, every editor would do it differently. And you can have all of the same material. And I know that's a film school project as well as taking elements from a, a oh, film yeah. or a television show and then cutting it and how everybody makes the scene differently. So Tyler, what is your favorite part of the process? I mean, I love, love production. I really love, I love the energy of, of a set. I share, by the way, I, I'm saying that because I share Matt's, I share the love of the edit as well, how intimate and how really um, small that and significant that process is. But I, I think um, the energy of a shoot is just something that, uh, nothing like it when you're when you are watching no. a group of people that are all experts and if you've done if we've done our jobs right you've hired people that think department heads that think the movie is about what they have shown up to do right which is the the most exciting thing for us that the costume designer thinks the movie's about costumes and the production designer thinks the movie's about sets and you <laughs> see all of that stuff like enter the funnel it's it's um unique it's unlike it's unlike anything else and it's just so damn exciting and chad what about you what's your favorite part of the process i'm gonna go with two um I, I do enjoy development of the script and making sure that we have the proper roadmap to get us someplace but um but at the best part of that is hey that's where the creative juices like really get flowing and you're like able to like figure out who these characters are and and where they belong in this world um, but then you get to this incredible part, and this has just been on the last three movies that we've done, um, where you get to hire people who are better at everything than you are to, yeah. to actually execute those things and to create those sets and, and to, to, you know, dress these characters and to, you know, dress these sets as well. Um, and then that, that's really fun. But like giving them the roadmap is, is something that's truly truly fun and then that's kind of like where you, you the movie starts to starts to percolate and that's just the the beginning of it because the steps that matt and tyler both described that's where we're actually really finding things and then i'm jumping ahead to the very end when we're in the final sound mix because 
Um, there's nothing better than like, there's a scene that just not working quite yet. And then you get to the final sound mix and sound design and you, you're able to add in those elements. And you're like, ah, yes, there it is. We finally have it now. Um, there was just like this one quiet moment that was driving me crazy or, or there was this, that we, there was something happening in the background here that we just did not hear. And it just took me out of the world a little bit. Like getting that into it is just that the, the, adding that sound and then finally adding the score where you get the emotional elements of, 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 of the sound design to, into it too. It's just like, it's, it's magical. And, and watching a score be orchestrated is just, it's magic. I'm like, I, because I don't play any instruments. So it's, it's so completely a language I don't speak. And, and to be able to like, be through the entire process and then have you know the composer come in and the musicians come in and just sit down and just add like the right every intention that you had in the development process and and in pre-production and and even on set when you're talking about what we need out of the scene just finally comes to fruition in this one moment and it's just it's a simple chord or a simple note and and i don't know how it happens it's just magical um and it just it, it just keep, always floors me watching that that final mm -hmm. process Particularly in a horror movie, sound is so important. And I don't think people realize, again, that every sound you hear in a movie, even somebody putting down a glass, is not really the sound of what it was when he put down the glass on the set. It's, nope. all, <laughs> it's all reconstructed so that every sound sounds great. And in yeah. building tension and horror, music and sound effects and sound design, so important. I remember the first day I walked onto the Sony music stage when we were scoring Sleepwalkers and we had a 60 piece live orchestra with Nicholas Pike as the composer and conductor. And to see the film being screened on the wall with the blue stripe running through it for each dissolve or wipe or whatever, and to see the musicians so into it, because this, it was a very sophisticated score, particularly for a studio horror movie. And to see the musicians going, what are we playing to? This is amazing. And, and, and just to feel the fullness, it made it feel like a big studio movie yeah. rather than a little horror yeah. movie, you know? We talk about music being the cheat code that you apply last <laughs> to actually make your weird, silly thing feel like a movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get to the world of Scream. Um, Scream 2022, what was your pitch? How did you guys land that fish? That fish jumped in our that, boat, Nick. Yes. <laughs> there's, uh, there's, the, there's the proper uh, way to tie up that metaphor. <laughs> I don't, I I'm glad it wasn't like, a shark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was, we are just so dumb lucky with that. I, and I look, we'd come off of Ready or Not, which is, you know, Scream 5 shares that entire group in common with Ready or Not. The producers, uh, Guy, you know, Busick moved over to Scream and was writing it with Jamie. Um, but we didn't, we didn't know, we, it was not even like a glimmer in the sky for us. And we, um, uh, Jamie and William and Paul at Project X set up a meeting with us at Spyglass, which was already strange because typically, you know, meetings are set via your, your agents and your managers, but our friends were setting this, this meeting up for us with, with Spyglass. And so we pop into this meeting. We have no idea what it is. Even Jamie called us beforehand and was like kind of coaching us about like, hey, just be yourselves, just be cool. 
And we're like, yeah, man, like <laughs> what you see is what you get. Like <laughs> we're, we can't, we can't be anything but ourselves. And um, we're in this, we're in this meeting. We, in that meeting, we learned um, via Gary Barber, who's the head of Spyglass that, that Jamie and Guy are writing Scream for them. And even then we were like, well, that's just crazy. Like our, our buddies are making, are making a Scream movie. How fucking cool is that? Had no idea that a few days later they would call us and ask us to come in and, and read the script. But it was, we, we, say, we say that if we had been asked to work on the Scream movie the day before, we would have said under no circumstances, hell no, too scary. Like the, the, the shoes are too big to fill. We'd be crazy to take, that, to take that on. And then we read the script and the script just changed everything. It changed our minds. Like in the first few pages, we were like, this is, this is undeniable. It is, it, it, we still had all of the fear, but it, the fear immediately became excitement because the blueprint was just so wonderful and so clear. Well, tell me, you had a very, very difficult line to walk in going where Scream had gone, and particularly because it's so meta, it's so self-reflectory. Um, and you need to bring something new to it, but you need to deliver what people expected from it. And in the case of something so self-referential, that's a really tough razor wire to walk. Tell me what your thoughts were on how you approach that. I mean, we talked about that probably more than anything leading up to actually getting like deep into pre-production, you know, because that, that involves who we cast, it involves the look, it involves just our general approach. And I think one of the things we wanted to make sure that we did was go back and pay attention to what we really love about Scream, the feeling we get from it, less, less so than exactly the same thing, even though there is a lot of like, shot for shot homage but but it's kind of playing it's we kind of wanted to kind of have our cake and eat it too we, it, which is sort of the exercise of how do you make something fresh and new that also feels like a warm blanket of nostalgia you know and, and, and honestly we were like god i hope this works like this is this is such a like a weird balancing act because we then also have a bunch of new characters that we have to introduce you to and we also have three really beloved characters that we have to reintroduce you to and then have those stories collide in a way that, you know, makes sense. It doesn't take away from both, both of those camps of characters. So, I mean, long way of saying, I think, I think that it went into like every choice is making mm -hmm. sure that we, we didn't do too much like winking and nodding in homage, but we did enough where you could really enjoy it. But I think one of the things we kind of held our feet to the fire on and we did this on screen six too, or even more so, I think, was you should never be taken out of this movie because of the nostalgia stuff. Like if any, if it, if it, if it enriches your experience, great, but this still just needs to be a good story about good characters going through a horrific experience. And how do we do that in the most efficient way? Um, Chad, how, how much input into the screenplay did you guys have? Because you were talking about story and structure and all of that. There were already writers working on the script when you guys became attached. How, how much uh, did it change once you guys got on board? With, well, with Scream 5, I would say not too much at all. Um, we were just like such incredible fans of what Jamie and Guy did. And, and you know, we were able to like talk to them a little bit about um, 
the new characters and what, what how do we introduce these new characters into Woodsboro and and what they do when they trust us with the script is you know then the casting process is on us and I think that's when those characters actually really come to life and and finding Melissa Barrera and Jenna Ortega and Mason Gooding and Jasmine Savoy Brown I think that's that's where you know those characters really became more than what was on the page and and that was something that was really nice to talk to them about and you know, I, like our very first conversation with Mason Gooding was, oh, this guy, it, you know, no matter what, the, the charm and the charisma that he has, just let's find ways to enhance that throughout this movie to really make that really make that shine through a little bit. And and, you know, their guy and Jamie are always down for the conversations like we're we're, we're probably in communication, the five of us. Um, kind of a lot probably probably too much sometimes it just it seems like if you if you don't look at no your such phone thing for, bro for, if you don't look at your phone for like you don't look at your phone for two hours you'll look down and you'll have like 86 missed messages and then you're like oh this conversation is just it's always going on and and that trust was very very important for us on screen five um to get through and we really we really did follow their roadmap to get it there well, every I think screen. the thing we love about Guy and Jamie really quick, just to say it, is they write really ambitiously. And I think that part of what our job is when we're when we're taking one of their scripts is actually like, all right, you guys wrote a $50 million script. Now we have to do it for 20. <laughs> and we love that. Like, it, yeah. it's about how do you take the energy of, of what they've written and distill it and actually make it something that um, even if it has to shift and you have to scale certain things down that the idea that the feeling that um, the sort of alchemy of it is stays the same and you, you like it's our job to sort of preserve that in a lot of ways it's one of the things we love about reading them is they swing for the fences and oftentimes you know the production has to adjust to accommodate but um, we love how big they and expansive they write these stories. Well, it's a lot better to crush something great down than to blow something up that's insufficient. Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. Fact. Fact. So in Scream 6, well, in all of the Scream movies, in the first act, somebody explains the rules of horror movies and the horror movie tropes. How do you not get caught in the trap of doing the same scene each time? <laughs> You know, it's funny. I mean, because I, I think we can only speak to uh, the two that we've done. Right. But uh, the the shooting the the first one, you know, was one of our first days with the whole cast together. It was like, and it's it, David's it, first it was, day, right? It was David's first day. David Arquette's first day. Yeah. Um, and it felt very homagey. You know, it felt like Randy's niece in front of Randy's memorial basically doing a randy and then in this one jasmine who plays mindy uh i I like i this is a long walk to say i think she has grown so much in just the year and a half since we made the last one as an actor and as a person that she came so fucking ready to shoot (laughs) this scene this time that we spent we had you know we had a whole day to do it she came knocked it out of the park we did her like maybe two sizes. I mean, you know, two shots of each size. And we're like, well, Jasmine's done. Jasmine killed it. And we'll spend the rest of the day just getting coverage of people nodding and sharing looks. That's lunch and that's a wrap. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. But she brought, you know, I, I, this is just giving credit to her for bringing so much of a different 
and very special energy to this one than the last one. So that you know it's the same scene, I think intrinsically. I think even the characters know it's the same scene. They're like, oh, fuck, here we go again. <laughs> and letting that all be a part of it, you know, so that the movie is as aware of the repeating, the, the repeating nature of it as the, as the audience is. I think you're right, too. I think you said something. I think the, the idea, too, that, that those scenes are an opportunity, certainly for us, to make fun of ourselves to make fun of the movie that we are currently making and that we are telling you as an audience to sit down and watch. That is like a vital ingredient in them that we are holding up a mirror to the process and to ourselves. And I think that that's one way that I, we, we kept it fresh. I mean, I know on both of those monologues, literally like up until the moment Jasmine is delivering them, we're, we're still thinking of like, what's another way to shit on franchises? Like what's another way to like make a joke about legacy sequels and how weird and silly and dumb they are. Like it's, it's really, it's really about us um, not being afraid to, to like tell the audience we recognize how silly it is. <laughs> well, we're on the same team with the audience and the audience gets it. Yes. They, yeah. they've it's, seen all the movies that you're talking that. Totally. About, yeah, and right. they totally get what works, what's silly, what's for, but let's talk about the casting process a little bit because you do have legacy players as well as new players. And this time you've got more legacy players. You have Nev Campbell as well. So was that a process getting her involved in, in the second go around? For screen five. Yeah. The, yeah. She, you know, she got on board, you know, that's honestly a lot of that's above our pay grade, but uh but she was David, David, I think it was David and Courtney and then her signed on, right? Yeah. 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 It was and then, the script. And it was the script. Yeah. And you know, we had a couple Zooms and those went really well. And 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 we met Ned for the first time in real life in Wilmington where we shot Scream Five. And it was and I I I have a picture of the rest of the cast meeting her. And like they just ran into each other at the hotel. And you have never seen the cast of a movie more excited to meet somebody <laughs> it was like you would have thought god just walked in it was incredible yeah. Um, but yeah she 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 got involved she got involved pretty early and like tyler said it was the script and then she had a lot of thoughts on the script all of which were incredibly valuable valuable and got and jamie applied those and she was a she was a big part of the process yeah i i love david arquette we worked together on writing the bullet oh, he's, he's he's such so, a terrific so guy oh, but it must best. have been an interesting process. Thank goodness he and Courtney get along well as they are ex-spouses. <laughs> so, but that yeah. process, you can tell there's a familiarity between them that works so well on the screen in this because it's got kind of rifty elements to it as well. So tell me about working with the legacy characters versus working with the younger actors. Not versus, but in, yeah. in tandem. I mean... I think with the legacy characters, there was a lot of like, just we have to get out of our own way, right? That, that they have lived with these characters for 25, 25 years. And while we can certainly steer, steer things and, and definitely, you know, the blocking, the kind of technical aspects of the performance, you know, all of those things are, are, are very adjustable and, and they were totally game, by the way, to have it all adjusted. I think, I, what was, there was a moment on, was it, it was the Courtney David day where they're outside of the Hicks house on five and 
Matt, I think it was you that overheard Courtney saying like, are they gonna, yeah. are they gonna fucking like tell us what to do? And no. she said it was, it was her first day. It was her first day. Mm-hmm. And she, we had been kind of prepped that this is Courtney Cox. Don't be fucking stupid. Get what you need and move on. You know? <laughs> and so of course we're like, yeah, okay, cool. Like agreed. We're not going to just be like, you know, waste her time. And then after three takes of her first shot, she was like, I'll do as many takes as you need, just so you know. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, overheard her talking to David. And she was like, some version of like, they're not going to be like afraid of me, right? And just like not give direction <laughs> because they, you know, and it's like, and she quit, very quickly just made us feel welcome. Yeah, it was. And just made us feel welcome, made us feel like we're part of the team. And like, that this is a, that she, you know, she, for someone who is so fucking successful and has done this so many times, she's still even on screen six, like even more on screen six, she was like, what do you guys need? I'm fucking here. Yeah. Let's do it. Like, anyway, sorry. I kind of hijacked you, Tyler. What were you saying? No, not at all. No, I think that you said it. I think you said it great. I, I, it was more, I think for us, it was, it was about sort of the icebreaker of letting them know that we, like that we like we bow at the altar like we love what they've done and we don't want to change those characters and i think for us so much of that was just making sure that was what was in the script was crystal clear that you know where dewey's character was starting in five where all of their characters were started how we sort of find them later in their lives was on the page really clean and really clear so that it wasn't we didn't have to like we didn't have to have these big holistic like character conversations. We, you, you see it on the page. It's written by people who know and love and love you as, as fans. We, and we certainly love all of you as fans. So bring Sydney, bring Gail and bring Dewey to this new chapter of their lives. And we're, and, and we'll tell you if it's not working, but we'll get out of, we're going to sort of get out of our own ways and just let that be what's, what's been so magical about, about them in the past and thankfully as you said Mick like they're dear friends like they are they are an existing family we became a part of an existing family I think that was one of the things that was really clear from the start is that we were stepping into something that that way predates us as filmmakers right like it's there is a there is a level of connection and of camaraderie with that group that we could we could only hope to get to experience a little bit of and and thankfully we did and um, so that was one part of it. And I think they really set the tone in so many ways for, for the new cast. I think that they were so welcoming for everybody and, and everyone was so starstruck by them. I mean, they're heroes, they're, they're legends. And so I think that, um, I remember there was, um, and of course there's always a little bit of nerves around like, how do you, how can you act around the, the legacy cast? And I remember really specifically the scene where, where after the big reveal, where Amber, um, where Richie's got got a knife in Sam and Amber's got a gun to, to, um, to Sid. And it was sort of missing an energy. And I think Mikey was like trying to figure out how hard she can, she could rough house with Nev and Nev was like, do it, just grab me. Like, and, and, and Mikey did, Mikey grabbed her hair and pulled her to her feet. And (laughs) it was like, but it was great. Like they were down, they wanted, they wanted it to be, to feel scrappy and real and raw and, and I think that it was really just wildly thrilling to see like, oh, they're down for the make-believe. Like they're no, they don't need kid. They don't need to be handled. Yeah, they're, they're here to work. <laughs> yeah. It was a, a similar situation for me directing Tony Perkins as Norman Bates in cycle four <laughs> after having been <laughs> a lot more complicated than that, but, but uh, yeah. definitely. Oh gosh. How yeah. 
to not get in somebody's way and to be an encouraging filmmaker who can see from the outside what he can't see from the inside, but not step on anybody's toes and knows he knows that character better than I do. And you had the same kind of uh, uh, playground uh, with your legacy characters. Was he welcoming? I'm sorry, I just want to nerd out for like a couple <laughs> seconds. Was that like? Uh, he was complicated. Um, okay. he, he had directed Psycho 3 and wanted to direct Psycho 4, but Psycho 3 was a flop uh, and a critical, uh, was not well received. And so they hired the guy who directed Critters 2 to make his next movie, Psycho 4. <laughs> Perkins had been directed by William Wyler and uh, and Alfred Hitchcock and Orson Welles and Mick Garris. <laughs> you know, it was like there was definitely uh, a a fight that had not a fight that had to be made, but I had to prove myself that I wasn't a guy just right. designing pretty shots around him. Yeah, but yeah. That I welcomed what he did and understood he knew the job because he'd been a director as well. So it was comp a little more complicated than what <laughs> sounds like the uh, the party that Scream Six was. <laughs> it was it was a charmed experience. Not gonna lie, I think we all and it was during COVID, so it was extra like special to all be together and be doing something. So what about opening night? What do you three guys do when your movie opens? Oh God, yeah. We drove, we've driven around to theaters, yeah. you know, and Together? you know, I'll say this. Yeah, we've done it. We've done it a lot of few movies and it's, we always do it wrong. We always <laughs> go to earlier screenings. We need to go to later screenings. We always go to like the yeah. seven o'clock and see the end of it or when the there's five like a few people. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, yeah. no, no, you need to be at the like the 8.30 screening or the 10 o'clock screening. 10 and right. Yeah. Like yeah. when it's a real rowdy scene, you know, yeah. but 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 you go together to and, yeah. and theater hop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember yeah. opening night of Sleepwalkers. We went to the eight o'clock show at the Chinese, which was packed, and then we went to the late lamented National in Westwood. And so I thought the Chinese would be the one with the rowdiest audience, and they seemed to be until we went to Westwood, and the uh, the educated <laughs> folks seemed to get more rowdy and outrageous. <laughs> than the Hollywood crowd, but to, so cool. to have a horror movie. And, and now you've done this three times in a row, theatrical wide release where you get big crowds and to be able to experience that where they're not sitting in front of their, their wall projected TVs. Yeah. 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 So and last time too, that we saw, we saw packed houses. Like it was, you know, you're always a little nervous. You peek around the corner and, and hope to see, you know, a few people in the seats and it was really cool on this one to, to see that people were turning out and were, and were actually, they were laughing and cheering. I mean, it's, there's just Vocal. nothing cooler. Yeah. It, it cool. felt like, it, it felt like going to like a show, like a music show. It was like, oh, people are like interacting with the screen constantly on this new one. Yeah. It was or Or like wild. even like, like a midnight festival screening. It had that type of energy. Yeah, like, it has that know, vibe. People are just excited to be there. Yeah. But just the very nature of Scream and its meta uh, roots and everything, it just calls for audience interaction. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So will there be a Scream 7? And if there is, are you guys doing it? Oh, really? Quiet. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, we would we would love to do more cranes. We've had so much fun doing these last two. Like truly, I, you know, Tyler was alluding to it earlier, but it it does feel like we've gotten really lucky. I, I, honestly, ready or not, too, it's not scream, but like our last three movies have all felt like once in a lifetime experiences where the cast is so special, the crew so special. You just there's like a it feels very special the whole movie to those of us who work on it, and. Yeah, I think we would be crazy to not want to do that again. Now, do we know if we're going to? That's yeah. what that awkward silence was. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I so appreciate you joining me here. And uh, what a great job and what a great success for you. And I couldn't be happier for you. And and thanks for helping us uh, elucidate the, the Scream experience for the audience. Really appreciate it. Wow. Thank, thank you. Really so an honor to yeah. be here. Thank you. Uh, thanks. Truly, so truly an honor. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.